there's nothing like having <laughs> your milieu skewered by somebody who knows it well okay. yeah i mean it's it's also a world i love in a way so it's yeah thank you i mean I, it's one of those things where in the states i'm obviously not as familiar or familiar at all i do i do wonder if there are some some different I mean, it's kind of funny because there's so much of the book you know you recognize so much and it's one of those books where you underline a lot just because it feels like it's nice to have somebody say it finally <laughs> uh there were i mean there were other parts that were yeah, I mean, it made me wonder about what's what's the difference, like where there are differences between the U.S. and the U.K. Where the different, where are there things that are just curious about you, or what you know, like there's a woman, an Australian woman who's a poet I talk to a fair amount here, and I get the impression from her like there's certain things that are just like oh that's just Alice, but then there are other things that are like oh oh Australia's like that's there's some fucking yeah, weird things yeah, about there yeah. yeah like what's the filter. Yeah. 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 Like I think they may be more <laughs> earnest or credulous, but then we're like, we're more self-indulgent or something like that. Mm. Yeah. There's definitely a difference. I mean, I, I would only be able to caricature it from my perspective. It, it seems to me, I mean, there's, there's poetry wars in both places. Right. And in Britain, they're very much concerned with, I don't know, questions of which tradition is the real tradition or something. Hmm. And it, it, it seems to me a little bit, in my limited experience of the states that there's more hustling involved like there seems to be more like brand alignment sort of thinking around poetry um and i mean kent johnson i know he's a much despised figure in american poetry but he um he has an interesting like visualization of this where he says since the um kind of since creative writers poets were given university jobs he said like all of the all of the stakes have gone out of like the various vying avant-gardes that american poetry had in the 20th century and he describes it as the post avant where he's like everything's kind of reduced to this horizon of everything's at the same distance everyone has tenure doesn't matter what kind of poet you are or everyone does it, you know, or people don't, but right, it's, yeah. like, it's no reflection of your allegiances, whether you do or not really. Um, so it's almost this like, um, undifferentiated landscape, which in some ways is kind of interesting, but in other ways it makes, it makes, it makes almost, I'm just going to dispose of my cat. It yeah. makes, um, I think it makes UK poetry almost look a bit can feel a bit nostalgic about these like there's actually still these sort of aesthetic differences. And they are disappearing. I think the internet is part of that. Like it's it's been a a way of remapping it and and a lot of people who would have been on opposite sides and no longer are. It's it's sort of collapsed that whole thing. But um there are still like there's still a kind of tribalism and there is still like definitely people at different extremes and there are that does seem to still affect people's like chances of recognition and um that kind of stuff so i don't know that this would just be a sketch and it might not even be very accurate yeah no i mean i i think that that does sound true like they're they're i think us and uk poets seem knowing in different ways like y'all are more <laughs> skeptical but we're more cynical like mm, that's interesting distinction yeah yeah like you you, you have a you like you have a um uh these groups these tribes in the book of poets the the scholastici and the grammatici oh, yeah yeah and, and you know and you kind of you say at one point that they're you know the 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 only real difference you might notice from outside is that 
is that one writes long poems, one writes short poems, but they are very, still very like concerned with all of these, you know, traditional distinctions and they're very proud and of, of these things. And that feels, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, you're always sort of fighting the last war, but I think even here, even like you're right that, that the, the professionalization of poetry flattened things, but then we're really kind of almost past that here. Like we're almost back to then just sort of like battle Royale grand hustle where we're like, you know, only older people are, are, are tenured. And so everybody young is just sort of scrapping it out in a big, you know, I say, yeah. war of all against all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will introduce the, the book. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious though. And it's the, you know, it's a, it's a question like any writer with, you know, literary ambitions, you know, sort of hates, but how, if you are forced to buy your agent or your publisher, do you even introduce this book? Because it's a it, it's a lot of fun. It's it's about the poetry world. It's also sort of a response to you know Gogol's Dead Souls, yeah. uh, or at least it kind of borrows some of the some of the you yeah. know the devices of that book. Uh, but it's it's also kind of sci-fi, and it seems like there's <laughs> some like social or or like political satire, or you know maybe more like economic satire. Mm. How, how do you, if to the, you know, what we think of as like the, in America, the convention is like the, the uncle at Thanksgiving. What the hell is this book? Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. My guest this week is Sam Riviere, author of Dead Souls, a new novel out from Catapult Books. It's available now. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, in addition to being a novelist, Sam is also a pretty prolific poet, or at least you know prolific for for his his age. He's published uh, three books of poetry and I think another book of prose. Uh, he we had a we had a great conversation. So Dead Souls is a just bananas book about poetry and a sort of a dystopian future, and uh, also kind of a a, a re imagining of Gogol. I, I will I will just say for the purposes of anybody listening to this podcast, if you have even a passing interest in poetry and especially in the poetry world, this book is just ex- extremely gratifying to read. It's just full of spot on rants and digressions about poets, poems, poetry, the poetry world in general. And it, you know, we we talk about the book but we also, you know, Sam's a, an honest-to-God poetry nerd, so we also talk about poetry, publishing, plagiarism, uh, different schools of poetry, uh, the avant-garde or the, the pseudo-avant-garde. He's very uh, knowledgeable and funny, and we had, uh, I think, a, a lot of fun talking. He was very generous with the time, so it is a long conversation. I'm going to cut to that in just one moment. Real quick, one topic we strangely did not get to was poetry readings, which is one he writes about just deliciously in Dead Souls. His treatment of poetry readings is exactly as merciless and as precise as you might hope if you have ever been to a poetry reading or 600 as I have. So thank you for listening. And I I think you're really going to enjoy this Let's get to that conversation right now. This is Sam Riviere, author of Dead Souls.
Before I read this, right actually right before I read this book, I read an article you had on uh, LitHub here. I don't know if oh, it was, right, yeah. yeah. It was called <coughs> In Defense of Poetic Plagiarism. And, mm -hmm. and it it had kind of a two two two, two fo focuses, I guess. One being the poetry world. Uh, there was it was like UK, Australia, and uh, and the US were all had these poetry world pla plagiarism scandals in the yeah yeah that's the right teen, yeah. the two thousand tens teens, and so I I read I read your article and initially I thought oh that seems like an overreaction I then went back and read some of the and like there was a lot more hysteria about that at the time than I'd remembered like there people were really oh yeah really worried about it and and there was and there was the Ira Lightman guy who was who called himself a poetry sleuth and like people it did seem like there was a there was some really crummy weird behavior almost from everybody like there was like mm -hmm. some like poetry snitches and poetry detectives and it was just like a weird it seemed like the the pitchfork torch waving was excessive in some cases but it was hard to find a case of somebody who who had who had like borrowed in a truly transformative way like it did seem like they were all sort of just thieves and you know question kind of, of bad faith right yeah it, that that is sort of how it, it felt like nobody yeah. was maybe people were excessively punished but there was but nobody was punished sort of wrongly if that makes sense yeah no i think there was um, yeah I, I didn't really seek in that piece to, to to i originally called that piece sympathy for the plagiarists and they changed the title yeah the, I, yeah the title was not quite exactly what you were arguing yeah i i i sort of yeah i went through a few like um at the time when that happened a few, a few like stages of thinking about it i mean initially of course it's, it's sort of like uh, funny and horrible for the person who's been plagiarized probably sort of funny for everyone else um or sort of not i don't know people get angry but uh, the more i thought about it the more i mean i think partly it was a technology thing that it's been a, it became a lot easier to find examples i mean who knows how widespread this was before it was easy to locate examples before digitization also who knows whether the impulse somehow arises out of the technological ease of copying yeah, and a, a subsequent thought I had about this, and, and I completely agree with you that I think almost all, in any case that I could think of, or off the top of my head that I encountered, it either seemed to me, yeah, a question of deliberate deception, which is what plagiarism is, right? There has to be deception involved, otherwise it isn't plagiarism. And clearly, with the with the express aim of gaining success, doing that, gaining some kind of recognition, but there was so clearly like a flaw in this process, right? <laughs> That like that like to to take a poem of one of your peers and submit it to the competition in which the members of that same community are also involved. Yeah. Like it was it was clearly going to happen that you would be caught. So who knows what's going on with that psychologically? There was one example in the US where I felt like the 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 poet was a young woman. Yeah. And I yeah. felt like I felt like she'd accidentally like she may have noted down some of the words and it seemed like she'd sort of absorbed somehow some of these lines into her own poem. And it seemed like a, a an honest mistake. Um, yeah. She seemed to yeah. really believe that. I, I think it was more than just that one poem that she borrowed, but it right. she seemed to genuinely believe that it was hers in some way. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, and okay, that brings me to my next stage of thought about this, which is that I think like I've definitely, I part of me immediately sort of felt sympathy as well, because I feel like something that this illuminated for me is like, a, a, I don't know if this is as much the case in the US, but in the UK, that the kind of poem that's going to win competitions, generally speaking, is like the poem of a personal revelation or personal mm. plight. And this is the link to the romantic thing about copyright, where um, there seems to be a, a deliberate um, stake on the idea that the lyric eye in the poem is like continuous with the poet, the economic legal entity behind the poem who owns the poem, right? That yeah. they're unified, they're the same thing. And that is like a really new, well, relatively in the history of literature, a new idea. Like if you go back to ancient poetry, that wasn't really the case. Like there was, oh, much, yeah. there was much, obviously much more like... Um, distance or or um that it wasn't legally codified um the eye was possibly more like the eye in a pop song or something where you don't really believe that oh yeah says this means that this really happened to her or whatever right like we have a we're, a, we're able to suspend that assumption mm. right in plenty of context so it seems interesting to me that poetry is particularly keen to capitalize on that assumption right that's one thing and then it seemed to me like well okay why is it why is it that this um, this poetry of personal plight, personal revelation, like the personal experience as um, valid currency or like the, the only currency that matters, like why is that the most um, foundational value in poetry? And then if your life is kind of not very interesting and you fail to um, have a, a, a car accident in which you kill a stag, and see its entrails, entrails spilled all over the road and you get to write a poem about it, like, where are you going to source your valuable literature? And it seemed to me that, like, there was something I understood there, which was, like, the plagiarist sees someone else's poem, they connect with that poem, they sort of feel like they may as well have written yeah. because, because in some way it is theirs, right? Like, the experience isn't theirs, but I would argue that that's a false perception about what poetry is, that it isn't about the authenticity of someone's personal experience. It's about the language they use. And like, um, there's this sort of interesting paradox where it seemed to me that the more, the more a poem is like honed in on like an indivisibly personal expression, the more generic it is. Like it became quite easy to spot these kind of poems. And in fact, some of the UK poets who were caught plagiarizing were obviously very good at spotting which poems were going to win competitions, right? Yeah. And isn't that a weird standard? Where it's like, how different is that actually from writing one of those poems then? And if they, at what point, if they've, if they've changed enough, if the stag becomes a rabbit, if the mother becomes a grandfather, if the car becomes a motorbike, if the, right. at what point does this stop being the same poem? I mean, I think yeah. it's, that's a strange way to compose, of course. But like, oh, yeah, it's to me, this started to, to reveal something about like this slightly strange value system in contemporary poetry, which um, I think should be questioned probably. And taking the um, taking these plagiarism cases as an example seemed like a way of doing that, I suppose, initially. I mean, it reminds me of, uh, do you know, it, like in, in the US, there's a cliche at this point, but I mean, it's an accurate cliche uh, when it comes to pitching screenplays. Hmm. which is, you know, what is this screenplay I'm trying to sell you? It's X meets Y. Yeah, so, X yeah, and yeah. Y are two already existing movies. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's exactly the process you're describing, but that's, 
I mean, I think I think you're 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 right. You have a, a passage where you say, you know, the this scenario in which an expression of feeling or an account of experience is a is a commodity to be protected or seized is more revealing of problems in contemporary poetry itself. A conviction that personal plight is the only chip valid for trade in the cultural capital marketplace. I think there's, and this may be, I'm not sure if it's a a distinction in between. Like I think like the like UK poetry is a longer and in some ways more matured tradition. Like it's it's older, it's further, but then I think American poetry is in terms of capitalism is further along. Mm, like yeah, it's yeah. more advanced toward the toward the, the you know the age of like cannibalism and brush fires, you know. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I, but the, the, it's funny, like you come to this conclusion at the end that it's like, I reading, reading this, you know, having a, like a lot of the same thoughts came to almost the opposite conclusion. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like you, you say, you, you talk about being born in the early eighties, which I was as well. Um, and being kind of used to, you know, copy pasta and like sample culture and, you know, remixes and all this stuff. And that's so much internet art is, you know, sort of curation of one kind or another. And then you you say, um, maybe one day there'll be no authors as we know them, only books, no poets, only poems, and literature will return to the anonymous commons where all creators are equally advantaged and equally obscure. And, you know, I'm, in a way, like, I, I would sort of sort of love that. Like, I think of the, like, Plato's Ion, where he actually makes no distinction at all between poets and reciters of poems. Like, it's the same thing to yeah, him. Sure. And, yeah, sure. And well, this, this would be the communist version, right? I would, I mean, which, which is, which sounds, which sounds more appealing in part because everybody's getting uh, uh, paid in some way. But the, I mean, the, the thing that I saw at least happening over here is that it's, it's less than like, it's personal plight, but even further, it's identity. It's like my own, and, and, and identity, not even in the sense of like a, some, you know, authentic connection to a tradition or a history, but a brand really it's about yeah, yeah, personal sure. brand and so like in a way like i see poets who are really prominent now over here they're in very few cases is there a at least with like t viral twitter poems you can say like oh maggie smith she's the one who wrote good bon bones but in most cases it's not even any given poem it's just oh that's that identity that's that brand she's the, yeah. you know, like that's that person and and even the big fans of these people can hardly name a poem they've written so it's like, in a way, like, I don't, I see the future as being, maybe, maybe I, I'm like fearing, maybe I'm just less optimistic than you. Like I'm fearing the, the ultra capitalist version where it's all, it's all poets, no poems, which you talk yeah, about at yeah, one point yeah. on Dead Souls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the, uh, the idea of the poet with no poems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, which... Yeah, I mean, I think that's far more likely. Um, <laughs> I, I would agree with that. Uh, I suppose what I was trying to get at is like, if, the, I think maybe not very well, but trying to sort of articulate like, what, what the logic of going down one path where we like, it's all about owning ideas, right? And you just claim, um, and it's about fortifying, yeah, your brand. And really, you, you're very um, stringent about how you police who uses your work in that logic, right? You would be like, even if you have next to no poems, you'd be very pissed off if someone stole a line of your poetry because that's your property, right? Yeah, that would be like one, one way of looking at it. And I agree we're much closer to that. And I thought we're sort of trying to think like what would the inverse be, which would be like, yeah, we, it goes back to the sort of um, almost like more like oral culture, right? Where the, the idea of who, who originally wrote the story or who came up with the story that's being told to you at the fireside or whatever, is, it's the wrong question. Yeah. It's besides the point. The point is, is this a good recital of the thing? Is this a good, is this a good telling of it? Um, yeah, so, and yeah, I suppose like then there would just be renditions of 
Yeah, we're much more remote from that version because we're very tied up with the idea of anything that is of value has to be owned by someone, right? I think I was trying to imagine like, okay, what if there's this, this possibility exists? Then is that preferable to to the alternative? Um, like the, like the... I think it's harder for us to imagine because we're very. Um, it's very hard to even. Look, I mean, I know there've been experiments with this with um, fake author names, like which multiple poets contribute to, or Renee Spaulding, is it things like mm. that? And but they always seem like these are simply experiments. Like we're so we're so invested, in, and I can't personally get around understanding. Like if I read a poet I like, I see all of their work as like a body of work which makes more sense and is more interesting the more of it you read right it's like it's the author function like you you you're interested in a poet really the poetry becomes more meaningful the more work you it's not necessarily about the poet's biography but it's certainly it's certainly about the poet as a as a producer as a as like an artistic power uh, and i don't really see a way way around that other than like getting into traditions or like forms or something as a but um, maybe the other way around it would be to to think of the author themselves as a form right that just as that just as like uh, a book is a form like you could go zoom out again and really you could say that okay an author is a form but there's nothing to say that a particular human being couldn't produce multiple authors or several several people could might i mean you know it's the dispute about mm. shakespeare like several people might not collaboratively produce a work that um right. and even even with something like a publishing house you're getting towards something like that where like I, I think this is something that's not thought about much as well is that the, the production of a poetry collection or book is like is a collaborative enterprise right like there are, oh, there, are yeah. there, there are lots of people involved in that process but we're very used to just seeing that as like oh that's just like the nuts and bolts around the work but um of course everything is social on that level the closest example that I can think of is, is really like celebrity here is mm. like you have a, you have an individual person who is sort of a going concern and that's like that's somebody but like maybe the name has been changed maybe the yeah totally. background is, like and you have a personal assistant you have a manager you have, like you have all these people managing this brand yeah, together yeah. so they I mean they're really that is a collective authorship and the product is a person yeah, yeah yeah do you remember Andrew WK yeah vaguely though he was like yeah, a yeah. Uh, his like party he was like a hard partying rock yeah star yeah yeah thing. so like a sort of um sort of i don't know 2000 sort of rock guy but there, there was a story about him that there was actually multiple people who were andrew wk right <laughs> that there were there were people who performed as him but there was no actual guy there were like there was a roster and there were obviously there was a massive like team around image production and advertising and it was like a conceptual project but i don't think that's actually true but i there's a character right, in the right. novel zelda green who's like a kind of version of that yeah it's like possibly like a, a kind of um image consultancy experiment that has got out of control <laughs> it's funny because it, it is so it's so much the case that these brands are very carefully managed and refined but what's also true is that it's still at least over here like the most devastating accusation you could make is, is of inauthenticity. Yeah. Like we still, we do have a kind of a, an odd fed, I mean, which, is, which is related, I guess, to that, like personal, personal brand, personal plight, uh, obsession. Like it's, it's important that this be somehow genuinely you that we're in love with, or we're. It's like, it's the process of this person for real. Is it like, 
like with Kanye is quite a good example as well. Like someone yeah. who's sort of been in a sort of this trans this, this narrative of transformation and like continual like exceeding of the previous form or something, which I think is, is I mean, maybe you feel like you can, you can tap it. I mean, what's the opposite to that? It's like the industry plant indie band or something, right? right. Where it's like yeah. being put together by like a- um, in, Like sync was famously one of those. Yeah, sure. Yeah, or like even like I'm sure, there, but there, there's something more sus- suspicious or sinister when like NSYNC are like obviously like a manufactured pop band, right? But like if it's like a band that presents as like authentic and like they all know each other from school and right, right, you know right. they're like they're like good guys and all the rest of it, and right. then it turns out that's all bullshit, and they were like come up with in like a board meeting and auditioned, then that would be right. a problem, right? I don't yeah, feel like yeah. I have a problem if the band is open about being manufactured right right and i wrote a thing about kim kardashian along these lines actually which was like that you, you had think, a whole book that was like bar oh yeah like on it was kim not kardashian really about her but she became she became like quite an interesting emblem about thinking about this one continues to be i suppose um where yeah of course the, the image is manufactured but you could you could very much say that the image is manufactured in the way that an artist manufactures their work right that the image is a project that is live and is continually it's like a narrative that's continually changing um and, and to see it that way seemed to me um to be like more more interesting like more rich or something yeah so th- so this is where i i felt in some ways confused by the book because as I said, like there, there's so much that just feels like observational satire of the poetry world that just really, really, you know, struck home throughout. But there's also part of the conceit of the book is that people turn to poetry in a way that like poetry becomes actually a, a like a place where there's real money and real cultural influence. And people mm-hmm. like wear poets on t-shirts or tote bags or things. Mm-hmm. And that I, I sort of t- like took as a, given in the same way that like I, I heard in in um, in a number of places, especially where you're talking about like industry mechanics, I heard uh, echoes of David Foster Wallace. You even have a poem oh, after him. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but I, I was then, I, I kind of remained curious throughout, like what is the, what is, what is being skewered or satired? Like what's being pointed at by making poetry it's almost like the biggest the, the the biggest stretch in the book is that poetry is like, yeah. like remunerative and like popular and influential. And like I was that's the part I kind of remained a little bit. Yeah, okay. About. Yeah, I, I I don't really see the book as a satire as such, because I suppose satire has to have like solutions. Well, satire is like it, it's like I'm making fun of something by imitating it, right? Like I'm mocking it by imitating it i suppose or i mean i would think like or through, i think of it as like exaggeration like slight exaggeration reveals existing foibles would be yeah nice. sure yeah 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 so i i would see it more as like a, a, a yeah like a comedic book that's not quite set in reality uh yeah like how it became like i thought the novel really more as a way of like i could have written an essay about some of this stuff but it right. became more interesting to, to like imagine a way through it so one of the questions would be like, what if poetry had this different sort of value? Like if we took the value that poetry is supposed to have that I see as the like the, one of the problems perhaps in contemporary poetry, that like this tradition that which really emerges out of romanticism of 
of owning your experience and your experience being irreducibly yours, where to me, part of the appeal of poetry has always been like the escape from the self or the fact that I'm not there. Like when yeah. someone reads my poem, I'm not in the room, right? I like that element. I don't want to be there. I don't, <laughs> want, them, I don't want them to know anything about me, right? So it's the kind of the opposite of making my identity like the, you know, like the dollar sign or whatever. Right. I was just interested in thinking that through. So I'd be like, okay, what if, what if like the value of poetry became very obviously it's like its value as like truth, if you like, its value as like personal truth of experience. And it's like, well, there would have to be a crisis in other forms of literary yeah. expression, which would be like, well, we're sick of the lies. You know, right, we want right, honesty right. now, right? And I suppose that that's a that's a genre like um, distinction that's that continues to puzzle me, which is like. I don't know when the split into fiction and nonfiction happened, right? But, the, you know, right. the yeah, early novels all purported to be like real reports. They, yeah, they all said actually, they were, yeah. yeah, totally. Like it's the novel wasn't, it wasn't this fully evolved fictional construct. Obviously, there were fictional stories before that, but for some reason, and I would have to tie this to like the, the capitalist marketplace, basically, that like mm. people have to. Once a text is like legally implicate, it can be implicated legally. It has to be clear what it is, right? It has to be clear whether it's supposed to be real or it's supposed to be veiled truth or it's supposed to be made up. It seems to me there's like holes in both categories, I guess, that like mm. as soon as you're reading fiction, part of you is like, well, I guess some of this is true. It has to be. Some yeah. of this is like modelled on truth. Yeah. There's, a, there's a germ of truth here. And when I'm reading nonfiction, I'm like, well, this sounds made up. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 like, yeah. Oh, there's a problem with the there's a problem with the that that category distinction is not it's porous, right? It doesn't actually hold water, if you like. Oh yeah, I mean, and, and in some ways that feels more like the kind of literary cultural scandals that feel of this moment, like like your book is about people who get in trouble for not making something up, and here it feels like you get in trouble for making something. Like, oh, that's not your true story? Like, that isn't really what happened to you? Whether it's, you know, the people James their identity or their background or the whatever, mm. whatever else. Yeah, part of that was like a thought experiment to reverse the situation. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, so part of me wonders with whether there's something a little bit evasive about the way I do that in the novel, where, like, to me, it seems like it is cultural stuff, but I've just kind of reversed the situation, if you like. Yeah, I mean, there... Like, what, what does come to mind is the um, my, at least my very limited understanding of NFTs. Uh, yeah, like which is in part of what is like baffling to me about the, the NFT thing. Which I, although I guess maybe it's it's it makes perfect sense is that the images that get sort of locked in and verified in this particular way are often it's like almost deliberately stupid, meaningless images. <laughs> it's just like it's almost just like content here. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just uh, that, yeah, that it's yeah. authentic. And there's something of that to, like there, there, there's sort of dual tensions in the book where part of what matters is just that it is, it's like content in whatever style or form or mode. But then there's, there is this thing that comes up a few times that feels like the kind of the golden thread that you, that's almost, almost smothered, you know, in the novel that makes my metaphors is that uh, there's something of, so the, the, we should say like, the the central character, though not the narrator, is Solomon Weiss or Weiza. Visa. Visa. Yeah. Is that how you say? Okay, I was wondering. Yeah, because and you have a lot of like loaded name, you know, person names, but I wasn't sure about the pronunciation. <laughs> I was just going to say that the <laughs> to, to, to let people know about the book. It is the central character Solomon uh, uh, Visa, who yeah, who's the play, you know the the two time plagiarist, though as you say in in different ways. Um, and and one of the things that happens when he kind of comes back into the poetry world 
he doesn't write anything down. He, he, he recites seemingly, you know, spontaneously though we learn later that he's, he has literally and figuratively ingested the work of a bunch of obscure <laughs> poets and then kind of re reworked it. But one mm -hmm. of the things that, that like seems to really strike people about it is that there is something, obviously there's some irony involved, but they, there's something genuinely, there's true poetry. And it seems mm -hmm. like part of that is part of that is a sort of ironic quotation marks around true, but also there does seem to be something like that touches the heart about this or touches home about this. And you even have him later talk about uh, another, you know, like loaded name, Phoebe Glass, uh, a, a woman he ends up with who, in addition to being like seemingly like a, 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 a like a, a total monster online, like she seems like the your worst nightmare on Twitter. She also is he says like she's a genuinely wonderful poet and that it's hard, like even among, even among like cynical, bitter poets, it's hard totally to resent a genuinely, like you, you actually still love the genuinely wonderful poets. It's the frauds and the, the liars that you, you hate. There is, there is like somewhere in here in this incredibly murky, you know, like vicious world, there is somewhere somebody still loves poetry. It seems like. Oh yeah. I'm glad that comes through because yeah, I mean, I, I never know how how obvious that is because I, I suppose to me it seems like I obviously wouldn't have thought about this stuff that much if I didn't care about it. Oh yeah, uh, no, it's I've thought of, I've I've been through the gears with it mentally these questions and like that's that that is what drives the book actually is like trying to think this stuff through and then sort of taking various what if situations I guess like yeah what if someone just came up with poetry on the spot. Is it David Anton actually used to do that? I think, but I only found out about him afterwards. Strangely, I don't. I don't, quite, I don't even know. I don't. There are yeah. quite a few. There are quite a few examples of things in the book that are kind of borrowed from from life. I think I lost you again. I just sort of made them up. I'm really sorry. Um, oh no. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, you said there there are some different different things in the book that are kind of Im imitations from life or from from. Poetry. Yes, there are, and there are also a few things I came up with just as an example of like, oh yeah, what if someone could just invent poetry on the spot? and it just seems to be real poetry and then yeah. there was someone drew my attention to someone who actually exists who does that so there are a few there are a few things in the book where i just made i made something up and then someone was like oh you mean this person it feels oh, yeah. like once you, once you map out the possibilities here there are people who have done it of course oh yeah i mean and, and there and there you have that you know as a as a, a trope in the book that we're where the 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 fake thing or the imitation thing becomes real over time like you you I mean the, the central conceit of the the Google book is that there's some basically like a, a tax loophole or something where he's he's buying the the technical ownership of dead serfs in order to there's some financial angle he's worked out it's some you know scam so he's collecting all these non-existent people that he yeah. technically owns so that he can he can get some money from the government in some particular, you know, yeah, because he'll have if he has that many serfs, he must have land, right? But he right. has nothing. Exactly right. right. Yeah. So he he invents sort of property out of out of thin air. And similarly in the book, I think you you have uh, Solomon Visa invents this this tribe of fake followers, but then from yeah. that he ends up amassing even more. You know, real like he. He seems to be popular, and out of that, he becomes popular, yes, even, yes, even exactly. without any yeah, without yeah. any work attributed to him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which That's did feel very out. true to life. I was going to say, I I was looking at a passage on um on forty seven, just because you had this wonderful long sort of like these for me like agonizingly on the nose passage about 
the <laughs> the the self-centeredness of young poets. I, I I was trying to I was trying to find a good passage for you to read just to get some of the book in people's ears so they can they can sort of hear okay. some of the yeah. stuff because it is all one. The the whole book is one chapter, but it's also one paragraph. And you yes. provide you like what I initially took to be a table of contents at the beginning is just sort of like an index to help you get your bearings. Uh, yeah, list the characters. certain characters appear. Yeah, right. Um, but so whether it's it's that or or there's another there's another section that you you like to read from to give somebody you know, give people kind uh, of what, a, the page. Right? Um, I, it, well, I have this. I have the. I guess the. I don't know if this is the American edition. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah, I have that. Yeah. So. The, uh, th I was thinking uh, 47, starting with, it seemed to me... Oh, yeah, okay. Um, it seemed to me then that I had some precious, irreducible nugget lodged inside me, which required only the correct formula to be extracted and converted into works of poetry whose worth would be self-evident to all. I was in tireless search of this formula, and I shared my personal conviction with several other young men, there were four of us, who formed what we regarded as a miniature movement of the art. To us, our work was of obvious, immediate and lasting significance. And if our efforts in the form of poetry recitals and a series of self-produced publications were met with indifference or uninterest, as not infrequently happened, we were genuinely puzzled. It was inconceivable to us that the value of our enterprises was not objectively apparent and therefore equally impressive to anyone who encountered them. As well as wishing to inflict the products of our creative labours on our peers, and indiscriminately on other members of the local artistic community. This was before any of us moved to the capital. We were possessive of our chosen art form in and of itself. And if any of us heard of another of writer of verse who lived in the area, unless they were one of the few older poets we admired and had sought out as mentors, or was of a comparable age to us, or had had some precocious success, we would trawl the popular platforms of the day and meeting in our private messaging group, demolished through sarcastic quotation and pedantic critique what we had found. My proprietorial instincts were keen enough that if I noticed someone in a cafe or on a train writing in a journal or on a laptop in a way that suggested their activity was literary, I became expert at spotting the clues, I was seized by a jealous rage and would attempt if possible to glimpse what they were working on. Sometimes the screen revealed a spreadsheet or the tablet showed a sketch and my murderous anger would subside. But at other times I caught sight of what looked like a work of fiction, or worst of all, the stark lineaments of a poem, and dismissing it as unquestionably substandard work, or as irredeemably misguided work, I would return to my own projects with renewed anxiety and aggression. During this period, my opinions on poetry and art were entirely determined by my interactions with my friends, that is, the three other young men I lived with for three years in total, the three years of our undergraduate studies, during which time we spent every available moment discussing poetry and fiction and music and art. Three years of basically relentless discussion while talking and drinking in the pubs of Berry, talking and drinking in the rooms of friends, talking and drinking as we walked between pubs and houses. And as we talked and drank to excess, rather than becoming incoherent, we became increasingly coherent. We became adept at anticipating and rebutting one another's opinions, at attuning ourselves towards or against one another's perspectives. It then goes on into quite a long-winded uh, yeah, kind of clo yeah, close description of what it's like to to have these uh, sort of yeah. solipsistic arguments and, and dis you know yeah. discussions among friends. Yeah, I mean, and it, as I said, like it really sort of stung in its familiarity um, for me. Though I, I do, I, I I tend to kind of think that the the 
it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty merciless depiction of that, that kind of uh, self-congratulatory relationship among a small group of friends. I do kind of feel like the, you were talking earlier about these small communities. I feel like the <laughs> kind of small, like small groups of friends and poetry, <laughs> like as, as sort of mutually masturbatory as they can be, are, are also like one of the places where there is at least some, there's some reference still to somebody's enjoyment of something which, yeah, like, yeah, which, yeah. Comes, which comes up elsewhere in the book like one of my kind of personal obsessions with the contemporary poetry world is the the removal from anyone's enjoyment like the the, the <laughs> disregard of any audience and so like here at least there's like well at least like among these three people we have some sense of like liking yeah, something yeah yeah i mean i do feel i mean that's pretty true to life for me as well that experience with um yeah, there's obviously an element of um, short-sightedness to that activity, which in retrospect, you can sort of see that you're taking everything incredibly seriously and you think everything's incredibly important. But then if no one thinks it's important, then it isn't. And <laughs> I do I do feel some affection, real affection towards those years. Like I, I, I wouldn't, and it's, it's, you know, when you read about the lives of poets or whatever, they all seem to have done something like this. Like everyone has a period of intense activity with other poets probably where you debate every line break and um you know you 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 really tell people what you think um and yeah I, I think uh, it does seem to me as well and I don't know that whether this is just that I'm more removed from that situation now and I I don't really workshop or anything anymore right yeah. um but that um but it does seem to me that that's kind of disappeared slightly that, that there doesn't seem to be the same at the risk of sounding cantankerous. But like, I, I do feel, and I felt, I feel sympathetic to your, what you just said, that um, it seems to me that it, it's not really about whether you enjoy the poem anymore. Right. And like, it's more about whether you agree with it or whether like, whether it hits you or whatever. And it's like, well, actually, what about pleasure? Right, and like right. for me, that was always the most important thing. It still is with poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's partly why I seem to have, increasingly lost interest in contemporary poetry that um or or at least like i'm very selective um, right. but it, I, yeah yeah it seems to me that like if it's not going to like deliver on that level i'm really not relying i mean yeah I'm, i probably shouldn't say this but i'm, I'm really not that interested um if no it, god I, no if it doesn't like connect with me on that level and and like yeah i'm sure that's a, a loaded statement and comes with a load of like expectations that could be critiqued but sure. that's just that's the tradition I I'm I I sort of got into and the, the one that still matters to me. I can see that there's there's problems with that as well. But I I guess to me I feel quite remote from the the what seem like the 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 primary concerns of contemporary poetry now. Like I, I obviously there's a social activism side which I care about. Sure. Um but it, it does seem to me that that's isn't it, it to me? It's always been the question that what's the question that art can do that like politics can't do? Right. You know, well, I mean, I, yeah. It seems, it seems to me a mistake to ask. Again, this is just my opinion, but to, to ask art to do the work of like activism or politics. I mean, there's there's going to be instances where a, a poem gives you a revelation that does affect your your point of view and sure. does affect your assumptions, and that's to the good. But I don't think that can be the no, I don't know. I don't really want to. Maybe. No, I mean, I'll I'll say for you know, I I tend to find that the 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 uh, the insistence on blending art with 
politics or activism tends to be the result tends to be kind of negligence on both counts. Like it's not, it's not great <laughs> politics and it's not great art either. Like, you know, uh, yeah, it, it does. I do, I do tend to think that like there's as, as navel gazing and self-indulgent as like a, like three, three guys or four guys living together talking about poetry every day can be, it's, it's you know, for good or ill, something is developed in that closed off, you know, uh, self-absorbed world that can't, whether that ha still happens or not, it it wouldn't happen in the same way if it were all happening in public online, right? Like it, yeah. if, if it were constantly, be, you know, referring back to a public conversation, it, it would be, whether that's a better or worse thing, it would be a different thing. Uh, yeah, I think I think we're in a different age um, when, when I, I, in a way, feel happy that I, as someone who values privacy and, I don't think the like strip lighting of an internet environment is is beneficial to like your little seedling of poetic experimentation. Um, so for me, I think like there there was a, a a much more subcultural and hot house kind of atmosphere around people's early forays into poetry, going to readings and it and and meeting poets, and that all seemed to take place in a completely different atmosphere to the, to the one that exists now around people's first um, exposure to getting their work up seen. Um, and I can't say I'm envious of the, the situation for young poets now. I think it's incredibly highly pressurised and it becomes incredibly difficult to to see where you fit into this or whether you do whether whether there's any reason to insert yourself into that discourse and whether there's any notable reward in doing so like it, it i think it does exist but i think you do need your 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 gang you know you do you do need yeah. to be a, maybe even geographically or if not like in in non-public online spaces to for that to ferment and like become something rather than just like fucking blasting it with attention <laughs> and right. then it, it tends to just like shatter or shrivel or something it's too early it's often too early for that i think and it's it's yeah. a big ask for someone who's written a few poems to suddenly you know hundreds of people are reading their poem on their twitter account or whatever that seems that's like that seems like an uncomfortable lurch to me into, into something that's a little too too intense because um, yeah. I think I first published poems in, in magazines with a circulation in the low hundreds, you know. And right. It's, I mean, <laughs> who knows who actually reads those magazines? Sure, right, yeah. The, yeah, the, the <laughs> question is, like, what's the proportion of, like, readers among, you know, because... Sure, but I don't know who reads them. And right, yeah. I suspect, I suspect hardly anyone. But, um, I, was, I was a little bit curious, just, and this may be just a, like a, a UK thing. Like you, you have the, so the town where these guys go to college is Barry, B U R Y. Yeah. Which is, you know, I don't know if that's a real place, but it obviously has a strong, you know, other suggestion to it. It, stand, it stands in for Norwich, which is where I, uh, where I went to university, but I, right. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to make it. It's what the town I'm referring to is called Barry St. Edmunds, which is not far away from Norwich. Sure. It is not known as a university town, really. So it's a kind of semi-fictional creation. Right. And I mean, I, and obviously it picks up on the kind of the theme throughout of, of death and dead dead souls. It's Barry, you know, it's like they're... they're oh, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't really thought um, of that. Yeah. And because you also, elsewhere, you have a, you have literally the city of Dis, which is like from Dante's Inferno. Like, it, I mean, Yeah, it's also a real space. Oh, there is a Dis? 
Yeah, yeah. The diss, <laughs> is, diss is, um, I think diss in Dante is with one S, right? And then, yeah, it is one S. In, Dante, in, a, yeah. in Norfolk, there's a, town, a city called Diss or a town, okay. um, which <laughs> is just coincidentally, like it was kind of too good to pass up, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but it, part of what maybe curious <laughs> because there is such a focus at, at some points in the novel on the capital. And I know culture in the UK is much more sort of perfectly centralized. We, we have kind of a, a few cultural capitals here, but we also just have a whole, whole lot more space in between. Yeah. Uh, but, but then at least my impression is that there's a similar kind of bottleneck of culture when it comes to uh, Oxford and Cambridge. And this is sort of pointedly not that. So I wondered, hmm. is that like you, you the, the guy, both, both the narrator who's talking about being in Barry and Solomon, Visa, who's who talks about being in disc, they do end up in the capital. Like it seems like sort of sort of everybody who participates in the cultures there initially, but they're not um, they're not Oxbridge guys. Is that meaningful there, or is that a, am I just yeah being a tourist? yeah um, yes it is um, because I think yeah you might go to some people obviously go to university in Oxford or Cambridge, but I, I wouldn't say that they're cultural hubs other than in an educational. Right. No, but it seems like it seems like there's a strong like if there if for like if you hear of somebody who is from the UK, there's like I feel like at least from here, there's a, who's like a, a, an active participant in the culture. It feels like there's a very high percentage chance that that person went to Oxford or Cambridge. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That I mean, certainly in the media um, that's yeah. publishing, especially that's true. Um, yeah, so the, the, what the sort of shadow versions of that are the Scholastici and the Grammatici that come okay, in Okay, that's the, those are, yeah. So you get the, they're kind of a, a very caricatured version of the, the Cambridge School and a possible, a possible antagonistic tradition that doesn't exactly exist. Right. Um, but yeah, Cambridge fake, is, fake rivals, yeah. Yeah, Cambridge is certainly like a nexus of a certain type of poetic tradition, um, a sort of modernism after pound kind of thing. Right. Uh, which is quite forbidding from the outside. And then Oxford isn't really the um the center of any definable poetry tradition, but it, it seems tempting just to to imply that there could be another tradition there that was very similar, but in opposition to it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, and those kind of rivalries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Try to say those kind of rivalries here, as there, I think, become really good ways to maintain supremacy. It's like you're picking yeah. one or the other rather than thinking of anybody else. Yeah, totally. No, it's exactly the logic, right? And in fact, there is there would be a tradition out of Oxford which would be like a less academic kind of poetry, but it, it's not it's not codified and formalized in the same way that it is in Cambridge. I mean, in Cambridge, the situation, I mean, perhaps less so now, but really was of acolytes and, and, a, and a school that was quite, um, uh, you know, ironically enough, a, a, an incredibly, um, a, a tradition incredibly invested in Marxism and something that I could never, I could never quite take seriously. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, there's certainly, I mean, there's certainly like a, a lot of elitist Marxism over here or Mar sort of. I think of, I mean I think of that that is like almost the difference between Marxism and, and, and the Marxist criticism or Mar you know like academic Marxism Marxist yeah, sure. Marxist flavor or brand yeah right yeah yeah um, yeah as a USP for your poetry almost so the the I I did a kind of a two man book club um, reading this with a, a guy who who does uh, stuff on, on the podcast with these and and a point he was sort of particularly curious about that that I was as well there's you know, it is, it is a, you're, you're saying it's not, it's not a satire, you know, wh wh however you want to categorize it, it certainly has like a, 
it has a very sharp tongue as a novel, but sure, there, are, yeah. there are places where there feels like some, some genuine humanity. And one of those is this, this kind of, you know, faint, but, but distinct uh, uh, theme throughout of like a, some genuine love for poetry, some genuine belief in poetry. And then the other one is this, um, or, or one other that uh, Brian was really curious about is this, this other story of these two women and, and particularly of the relationships that these women have with some of the young men in the novel. And there's, yeah. you know, the, the narrator has a, a, an affair with this young woman almost to spite his, you know, his, his buddy who has a crush on her. And yeah. in, sort of treats her sort of in a crummy way, and they and then she ends up going off to, to date a poet after that. We learn later that she's this kind of tr tragic figure. She's sort of sunny and wonderful, and everybody everybody loves her, and she just gets treated worse and worse and worse. Mm. Uh, to, you know, to, to the point of being you know destroyed, and uh, and then being kind of um, uh, she becomes the 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 banner waved by her her friend, who's who's we're, we're told the kind of the the wonderful poet. But it it was apart from just being kind of a moving story within within this larger cultural you know panorama. How how do you think about the relationship between that? Like again, it was sort of like there, there's the stuff about the poetry world. There's the kind of the larger cultural uh, and and again like that you do have the activism. You have kind of this, this economic kind of vision of things. But where does what role does this play in all that? Because it felt like it was. It was interesting and it was moving, but I wasn't sure how it added, where it came into yeah. the bigger picture. Um, I think it's an, it, it's partly comes of wanting to, in some way, indicate the limits of the narrator's um, authority and uh, a sense of some place where his his knowledge drops away, um, that, that the world of the book exists beyond what he can see and understand. That there are, and also that I think the idea that there are consequences that are sometimes more severe and serious than one imagines from one's actions, and this this again seemed to be, um, yeah, perhaps it doesn't in a very direct way tie into the the plagiarism idea, but I suppose there is the sense of like this is a story, perhaps what it relates to, and in, in some ways I see it as the heart of the book. The, the Jessica Lake narrative. It's, it's, it's the most moving of, part, yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, it's kind of the core of it in a way because it is the thing, it is the reason that the Solomon Visa character is talking. It's it's what's powering his his monologue, which lasts most of the book. And it emerges as like the motive for why he's talking to the narrator. As well he as has, like the narrator's like culpability in all of this. Yeah, exactly. That the narrator is not above it. That, that seems to me something important, that he seems like a spectator who's very much got no nothing at stake in particular. He's, a, he's, a, he's made himself aloof and in some ways untouchable uh, in the situation he occupies. He has a position of relative privilege and he's able to exert his preferences and his, um, you know, do what he wants, basically. And then I wanted that it was important to me that there was a sense that... Um, he he was implicated. He he his his actions make him a participant in the the world he's in, and that this catches up with him in some way or another. There's a point that the narrator or or, or Solomon Visa makes about when you're the person who tells a story, you become part of that story. 
Like you become a participant in the story. And there's a sort of contagiousness to stories that like once you've been the recipient of a story, you sort of have a responsibility and you sort of, you are sort of in some way um, infected by that story. Going back to the oral tradition at the fireside or whatever, in a way you are virally passing on a narrative and there may be meanings in that narrative that you're not completely aware of, right? There may be, um, like in most folk tales, there's some kind of warning or value being asserted in that tale, right? That you might not exactly recognise, but you will nonetheless become a carrier of that story, a bit like of a virus or something. Right. No, I mean, because there is a little bit of a feeling, and like, like Brian, I think one of the ways he, he formulated the question was like, well, is this is is like the the is poetry juxtaposed against the story of this woman's ruined life? because to show that poetry is like silly and trivial or to show that it's important because in some ways it feels like you you get to this and it, it's like they're like uh zen parables where you're you listen to the story and then yes like three-fourths of the way through you're like oh actually none of that matters this yeah. is the thing that really matters well i think there's an ambiguity there for me i mean there's a there's a scene early on where the jessica lake character the, yeah. this character we're talking about attends a poetry reading and it turns out she's the only person who really understood <laughs> You really understand yeah. why everyone else sort of pretended to understand it. Yeah. Um, so I feel like also what's what the vehicle for Jessica Lake's the consequences of everyone's behavior and Jessica Lake, the Jessica Lake character, the vehicle for that information reaching you is it comes through the, the literary form, right? Yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to force that one way or the other, but I would say there's definitely ambiguity about what the relationship of art to let's say suffering or real real life um consequences of of the behavior of the artist. And then yeah. that seems to me like a fatal ambiguity, like it's not one that can be resolved, but it's right. one that sort of haunts haunts poetry in a way, right? Like the, yeah. the snakes, nonetheless, we can all, all say poetry is trivial and it doesn't matter, but nonetheless, there are real life situations. The, the, the version I have in the novel is the, um, the prisoner in the cage who has memorized this long poem. Right. There, there are nonetheless plenty. I mean, you might think of um, Osip Mandelstam's widow who memorized his work. But um, there are situations where the, the real life consequences or undertakings people made in the name of poetry were, were extraordinary, right? Right, and that, yeah. And that therefore there is, there's a value there that can't be completely dismissed as it's like a load of ego worship and nonsense. Right, like it, right. Where it's like there are scenarios where that becomes clear, right? But those are not easy to come by in our day-to-day -day existences in the kind of culture we live in, right? No. right? Poetry is very rarely tested on that level anymore, in no, a way. Yeah, yeah Louise, Louise Gluck has a line in one of her books, uh, Theories and Proofs, I think, where she says, like, no no first world poet is brave. Like, there, sure, are, yeah, there yeah. are brave poets, but, like, hmm. this is not, like, telling about your sad childhood is not brave. No, Just, no. Like, yeah, the, the, the prisoner or, in the cage. Or, or, you, might even say, you might even say subversive, right? I don't know right. if it's possible for a, a poet from the advent of the internet possibly to be subversive. Like. Well, which, right, which which is a, like you, you mentioned earlier that you you're, you oppose competition in poetry and you don't like to think about poetry being, you know, about individual poets, you know, g gaining notoriety or success. Well, but, I do enjoy but, thinking about it, but I kind of, <laughs> I don't advocate it. 
Well, right. But then it's, it's I mean, it's it almost as, impo- I mean, and again, like I think the, the economy of poetry may be a little bit different there than here, but like you are, you can advocate that, but you're advocating it as someone who's got a teaching job and has published books and is, you know, mm-hmm. like it's sort of hard to, you know, to, to do that. Or it's easy to do it. Right? Right, yeah. Or it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's easy. To, it's easy to do it from, from, from one position rather than another. So I, I did like, I, now that I think of it, I did looking back in it, at it in the Jessica Lake story, you're right. That she's the one who has the the genuine response to this poem at this poetry reading, which is full of people pretending to understand things or pretending to, 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 you know, be knowing so she has this genuine response to this genuine poem, but then the guy who wrote the poem, whom she, mm. she ends up, you know, she ends up dating, is a total piece of shit to her. And so, like, yeah. like the, the the there is there, I think, something that rings true about whatever whatever like genuine humanity and and soulfulness and morality may come through in poetry. It's not. It, it has very little yeah, to do yeah. with the conduct of the poet in his life. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah, I that I completely agree and. I mean, maybe that is the the thing that is unique about poetry, or, or seems to make it worth returning to always, is that like you you don't know with a poem, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the poem you can. It's possible to encounter a poem that seems to know more than it possibly could know when it was written, right? It's oh, possible yeah. for a poem to somehow anticipate things that the poet couldn't have anticipated. Yeah. It's, there's somehow this this like hidden capacity in it somehow where it seems to be able to mean more than it could have possibly be intended to mean in certain situations and i i, I very rarely encounter that in fiction it, it feels like almost always like this has been woven in with a more i feel like it's almost in an involuntary way a poem can mean something right and, and yeah yeah and it's not really, or you can even write a poem and then years later be like, oh, I didn't even know what that poem was about when I wrote it. Some, like of, now, some of that has to be like the spareness of it. Like I think like part of what yeah. makes, like the, the, the um, like in the, you know, old Greek stories that Apollo's, uh, or, you know, oracular pronouncements, part of what makes them so powerful is that they lack all context. So that like, sure. it's, it's yeah. only later, it's only after the fact that you can see what they mean. And poetry mm. feels a little like, like it's so stripped down that it can it can acquire context that the poet didn't have access to yeah absolutely yeah and and of course it reflects back an image of its if it's reader in that sense you know like the right 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 like the, the sonnets can mean something different to us than they meant to the victorians because they're big and complicated but there's enough gaps in them if you like or enough absence of context for them yeah. to sort of like reflect something different back every time that does seem like a, an amazing thing in a way. I do. I do think there's something about that to to. I mean, something about that's poetry. Something about it is 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 art, though, because like there was a there was a story here in the New Yorker a, a while ago, maybe a year or so ago. It kind of t- as a it was sort of a takedown of Flannery O'Connor. I don't know if you know her. So, I know of her. I don't know. Yeah, she's she's a, a, a short story. I mean, she's a, I think an extremely influential and beloved short story writer here. The the article was sort of about. Like oh well, she was really a lot more racist than people knew because her her stories often deal with race, and I think like hearing in the 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 article again felt like so much so much like literary journalism or criticism here. It felt like primarily a vehicle for promoting the author of the article, but right, yeah, yeah. but like it I it both like in recounting some anecdotes of, about of her you know saying shitty things or acting in a crummy way. I felt like, well, I, I believe that. I believe that she could be small-minded. I believe that she had, you know, blinders. But what's also true is that there is a 
there is a clearer moral vision in her work than maybe she had in her life. And I think yeah, that that's is, interesting. Like people, I think there's there's a way in which art can be truer and and more right than the than the artist you know has access to. Like when you write really well, I think you're always writing a little bit beyond your own capacity as a person. Mm -hmm. Uh, or at least that, which is part of which is part of what I think is like the the virtue of the tradition um, here, like in a in a like an Eliotic sense. Um, hmm. So I, I'm I'm curious uh, because it is something I've I felt my my wife and I you know met in grad school for poetry and she's totally a, totally abandoned poetry. I, I've, I feel like there is a there is a real disillusionment among a lot of poets. I, I think often it's people our age. I'm curious, you said, you know, you, you've published a few books, I mean, poems that like relatively recently, I mean, or at least within the last 10, nine, nine years, you've published like three, two or three Yeah, books, I published right? a book last year. Yeah. yeah, so, but you just said earlier that you've, and then you wrote, you wrote a, well, I mean, I guess you're writing a novel now, but you, you also said you kind of lost interest in contemporary poetry. How, how much or how do you mean that? Not across the board. Right. I mean, I used to be a real poetry guy, you know, like I would read all the magazines. I would a contemporary poetry think, guy, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's also like that also is a thing that you go through, sure, like sure. when you when you get serious about poetry or whatever. There's a point where you just have to absorb a load of stuff, and then then there's like then there's another phase where like you start to have more of a sense of what you like and what you don't like. And I sort of try, I would try with everything because part of me felt like if it was poetry, it was interesting enough for me to read. And then slowly I became more confident and, and this was related to me not feeling like I didn't have to assert a, a, like a, I could assert a preference, but I wouldn't assert like an objective value. So I'd be like, for me, I prefer this. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with reading poetry of the Cambridge School, which I know lots of people like, but for me, I've never got anything out of it, yeah. right? And like, I personally don't really click with the romantic poets, but I like Roman poetry. So it's like starting to be like, okay, I, there's certain things I feel like I can tune into and that are like, for me, are thought provoking and they lead me further in, they lead my thought thinking in further, further than other things. And I feel like I tune into them better. So then it becomes about prioritizing that. And I guess um, I do read contemporary poetry, but I read mainly poetry in translation at the moment, European poetry, and a handful, a handful of like contemporary poets who I continue to really love. I, I also have a small press, so I mean I publish quite right, a lot. Right, of right, right. Yeah. So I mean I'm I am I do read a lot of it, but I would say I've become a bit more. I would say that the, the percentage of poetry that I like out of what I encounter is very low. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's under 10% or something. Like I, most of it, I, I find it too obvious what it is. Like what tradition it's in, like what, and I feel like a bit of a, an asshole saying this, I, I, but like, I, I feel like it's more about like, you read something and you're like, okay, I'm, now I'm interested. Now I would like to know more. And then you begin a journey with a poet, right? Like you start right, to right, right. them. But quite often I read something and it's very obvious what it is. Yeah, it's like there's no mystery or something. It's like, I can see what this is. And like, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't feel I need to go any further, right? There's, right, a, nice yeah, interview, yeah. there's, a, there's an interview with a Romanian poet, Monk, 
which I read about 10 years ago, but really made a big impression on me, where he said, when you read a, a, a poem that's a real poem, and I would take that as subjectively as, as sure, imaginable, sure. It, it, you also, it's a problem because you have to change everything you think. Like you have to, you, it hurts you. It's yeah. like, okay, now, I've, now I have to think, now I have to deal with this. So he's like, I dread it. I dread to encounter <laughs> a real poem. But I also love it because that's what it, that's but i completely relate to that there's poets when i first read them i was like oh okay i have to rethink things now because this is this changes things for me yeah and that's a that can be a a, a a kind of like experience that can totally i don't want to feel like i'm just dis, was dismissing political or politicized poetry out sure, of hand sure. because that can certainly be a, a reappraisal that impacts you on that level but yeah. i I think perhaps it's something about a poem that is too obviously setting out to have that effect. That is, and for for every however I phrase this, there'll be an example that doesn't. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I, I would just like to couch this with like plenty of caveats and reservations, I guess. But, right. Yeah. But um, be, like, yeah, like you continue to be an avid reader, right, of, of poetry. But like I, I, I feel like more remote from it as like a cultural sphere or something it's funny that you're talking about you know a, a real poem changes things I, I think that maybe in in so far as there is sort of a a not even consensus but like something remotely approaching a consensus in, in american poetry there is a there's a premium on the disruptive aspect of sort of <laughs> original or real or good or great poetry that like we we we're very aware that like it ought to shake things up it ought to change things but i think there's a there's less there's far less emphasis on like line by line you know uh, uh beauty or or indelibleness and then there's all and then there's almost no emphasis on like a larger coherent vision or like you like like it's, it's sort of it's all disruption no sure. yeah uh, if everyone's disruptive then there's nothing to disrupt <laughs> right which is how and it, i think that quite quickly becomes a mode that it needs an enemy right it needs like a, it needs us and i think there was a point in recent times you know but under 10 years ago where that that you know there's been there's been a a, a shift um, culturally speaking in the last decade where there's been a um a re-evaluation of whether the became very transparent that there were well we were supposed to be in a situation where um everything was equal it wasn't it wasn't equal for everyone yeah there's there's a, a point i was thinking there's a poem in um a recent issue of poetry called fuck your lecture on craft my people are dying and i, I think that there's i think yeah, that, so, that's yeah, that's yeah, yeah. one that's one train <laughs> of like of a of a backlash to you know yeah yeah and i think these interventions at times are essential and and have to and have to happen and that's a re for a whole load of people that's a reinvigoration of the poetic practice right and that's great but i i think that there's always a continuum right there's always there's always also what something being carried over and like yeah disruption is always necessary but at the same time it will, if disruption is the only currency, then yeah. very quickly we're going to get to a situation where it's like the disruption will become disruption of this political new political awareness, right? Which will be like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. actually, aren't we all fed up with having to do that now? And will there be right. like a resurgence of some like 
really un-PC writing or something. I right. don't know. I feel like disruption isn't in itself interesting. No. It's, like, it's, it's about what it's doing. And I think there have been really vital interventions in the past decade on that level that have shaken things up and have also made poetry a more open environment, which I think is good. I mean, people have, I know John Cher came into a lot of, I don't know how like public we can go with this on a podcast, but I know oh, he, no, please, yeah. <laughs> he basically got into quite a lot of trouble and there was a yeah. lot of, there was not a lot of love for Don Cher uh, on no. the internet at a certain time. But no, no. I mean, I was like, people have short memories because when Don Cher took over, Poetry Magazine was a, a very staid, really very traditional poetry magazine. I mean, it was, yeah. it was the Christian Wyman era, right? And that, yeah, was yeah, not yeah. Like, that was not a magazine where any poet I was, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm with American poetry. I, I'm like a fan of the New York school. That was my way in. And then, sure. but it was not, it seemed like a sort of new formalism type deal. And it, yeah, I, yeah. I, I had a hard, I had a hard time, like, I mean, you couldn't get hold of it over here anyway, but it was when sure. it went online, you could get it online. Yeah. But I mean, that seemed like a fairly like, stiff poetry publication and Don Cher did really open it up and made he did numerous features on UK poetry he really yeah. did shake things up and then it's like suddenly he's not enough of it he became the new thing to be disturbed oh from. yeah yeah I, like, I, 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 I had plenty of yeah. it will just get quicker and quicker and it, yep. it'll end up quite confusing for everyone and I think at this point it becomes like a social a socially and physically no socially mentally and emotionally absorbing scenario which has really nothing to do with poetry that is about so, like staying abreast of the latest like thing poets are mad about and it and right. it seems like that isn't anything that's nothing to do with writing poetry in my opinion anymore it, no. it's about it's about feeling the discourse and, yeah. and and sadly the i mean the technology that powers this is is not neutral and is no. it's, it's worked out that negative emotion is 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 the best fuel. So yeah. I mean, I, I'm not particularly interested in that in going into that whirlpool. Um, no, no, no. I mean, and why why would you be? Do you think is this? Uh, do you find yourself because I know this has been the case for for I mean, me to some extent and, and a, a lot, for a lot of poets I know that there have you been you just you just published a novel, but are you are you is that a larger turn for you do you think towards um, fiction no i have another poetry book that uh, is ready i i'm i might write more fiction i don't know right now i don't really think about that i just things emerge and it will just be what next when that happens but um i finished a poetry manuscript so i do have another poetry book um but i suppose and i think i would also say i would, would say there's an element of possibly the age I am, I'm 40. So mm -hmm. like, um, of like, I think maybe it's normal to feel like you're not, <laughs> you're not particularly in step with what like the poets in their early twenties are doing right now. Yeah. That's probably as it should be. Like I, so I don't worry about that. And I think also when you get into that, you know, the sort of, <clears throat> you're no longer like a newcomer to the situation. I think it seems quite natural to sort of become a little bit distant from it and a little bit more remote and that that's actually where you start to get more deeply into it too right like you start to become more self-sustaining as a writer or whatever and or it can or can work that yeah, way yeah 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 and, 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 and you, get sort of, you go further than and that's not really 
that so that stops becoming about your immediate social situation. It's not really when you start out, that is everything. Like the people you know through poetry, yeah, yeah. And like like we were talking about with that passage, they're they're the be all and end all of whether whether you you've written a poem or not, you know, so or whether you will or whether you won't. So that that that's no longer the preeminent concern, right? It's like I imagine I'll continue to write, but it's like that's not really something that's going to be determined by my peer group anymore. Um, I'm lucky in that I have I've published some stuff and hopefully I'll be able to publish stuff in the future. So, I mean, you know, that seems fine to be recognised that these things are probably, I shouldn't probably worry about that stuff and neither is it really my place to get involved in it in that, on that level. I have wondered about, like in some, in some ways poetry feels to me, like lyric, lyric poetry, short, short poetry, you know, lyric poetry feels to me like like a young man's game and an old man's game. Old, <laughs> old, old, like, it's yeah, like the, like the you know, like the, the it feels like middle-aged maybe there's something about like certain forms that appeal to different phases in life yeah. uh and there's something like more m m muddled and like maybe substantial but also less crystalline about about fiction or you know well i mean yeah i've thought about that there's some poets so i started off really liking british poets um uh, there was certainly a sense of diminishing returns, right? Their first, like, they, they, these would be poets now pretty old. Sure. Um, there was a certain sense of their first book, fine. Their second book, they're starting to, you know, they're probably third book's their best book or something. Sure, sure. Fourth book, okay. Mm, fifth book, who cares? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Some people have written 10 books, <laughs> and it's, it seems like that's a lot of poetry. Oh like, yeah. Who, who really needs ten? Have you read the Anthologist by Nicholson Baker? There's a really yeah. funny. Oh really yeah, funny yeah, yeah. Part in that where he says three books is enough. Like it is. Unless you're like a, a, the sort of poet, like a John Ashbery style poet, who like does actually seem to have phases that are quite distinct from each other. <laughs> there's really, there's really no reason for you to write more than three books of poetry. And I, and, um, and I think he might have overdone it a little too. But yeah, sure, I mean, yeah. because, because for him it wasn't, it wasn't like ten books. It was like twenty-seven books. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, sure. It's insane. You're dealing yeah. with a, a body of work which is expansive, and yeah, I mean, for some poets it seems like that's just how they are. That's fine. I feel like if it's there also seemed to be a question with the lyric poem, which I felt like you were suggesting, which there was a poet I, I really liked, um, uh, Ian Hamilton, who's, who's dead. He wrote, he wrote one book of poems, like mm. maybe two books, but about 70 poems in total, very short, which I, were a big discovery for me in my early 20s. But really, he only wrote when life meant that he had to write, i.e. when he was in severe emotional crisis. Right, right. right? So it's like... In a weird way, the logic would be that if you manage to sort out your problems, like writing would just be a symptom of your mental strife, right? So in an ideal world, you would stop writing poems eventually because you would no longer be in emotional crisis all the time. Yeah, or you'd so come in and out of it. Yeah, like you, there'd be that, phases that seems, where you, yeah. yeah, that seems to me like a strange way of thinking about art, right? I can't think of another art form where it's like, well, it's fine to write a poem if you're like, it's either that or like jump off a bridge, but like I can't think of another art form where the like the the intensity of like of um of your of your personal like mental health problems is related to your output so directly, sure. right? and and that seems like a not a desirable way of setting up your writing like of being a writer. It's like well, if I write, I mean, 
Berryman almost seemed to like seek out like emotional turmoil. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Productive. And that, that seems like a completely like a fallacy, right? No, like right. Real- yeah. I, I think Oscar Wilde has a line about like the 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 most the best poets he knows are the most boring people. Um right, yeah, yeah. Uh, Although like there would certainly be like what the reason I like Ashby as an example is that it seems to be nothing to do with him, whether he writes poems or not. Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just something he does and he doesn't see I mean I, I like that he I mean this shocked me as a you know 25 year old poet that he said like oh, I don't he, he was didn't remember any of them even right. <laughs> like someone quotes one he's like has no idea if that's him or not it's not just that there's so much of them it, he literally doesn't care <laughs> like but well, that, that to me presented like a totally different like the, the sort of British tradition that I'd grown up with, which was the post-movement tradition, like out of Philip Larkin and people like that, yeah. was really, really a post a poetry of like personal immediate um, crisis, right? right. Or, yeah. or hard-won personal reflection, right? Yeah, yeah. Always yeah. a personal poetry, always a poetry which is pretty much all the chips are staked on this is my life and it's me in the yeah, yeah. right? That's there are other traditions of British poetry, but that was that one. And and to me, it was incredibly refreshing and liberating to discover a tradition that was nothing to do with that. That was like it wasn't diminishing returns as you get older because you have to maintain this pitch of like intensity in your own life. It was like no, you could you might be a, a poet in the way uh, a painter is a painter or a, a musician is a musician, where it's something that you do, and it's it's a well that you can go back to or a, a river that you're always near or something, and it's like. That sort of seemed like a much more, to me, intuitively, I connected with that way of thinking about it a lot more. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think everything you're saying makes perfect sense in terms of like craft and like uh, and analogies to other arts. But it does feel like with poetry, there's maybe partly because it has a a different kind of shelf life than other poems and be- or than other art forms, and because it's it's like the least remunerative and like least popularly accessible like there's there's so you know with it with an artist you know there's there's like a there's such a thing as like a journeyman artist like i mean there's you know like there's there's no like journeyman versify like you know unless you're sort of like cranking out verses for i mean i don't know like hallmark i mean i don't know what, what you would yeah not even in a sarcastic way but like i'm not sure what it would be that you'd like you <laughs> where you'd be like well let me paint you know let me do a mural on this wall like otherwise I it feels like got, some, I, yeah sorry go I, ahead i once got approached by a company to write like commission poems so like someone would someone would you'd get like a a um worksheet which would be like okay it's like my my nephew's bar mitzvah and like we need, <laughs> yeah yeah we yeah, need yeah. A, and this is what he likes he likes go-karts and he yeah. and you know and you'd have to write a poem i mean i didn't do right. it but i they these do do exist, but you have to say it's pretty. This is pretty far removed from what we're talking about, I suppose. Right. Well, no, but but I think like there's there is some version of that with with most art forms, and I don't know, like po- like poetry, of course, like over historically has meant a lot of different things. But, like the way at least we think about poetry now, it feels like it may not be a. It may. I mean, it may be partly because it's not really a healthy art. Like it's not a, an art form in good health right now. But, like that, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm curious if you like, as somebody who who is publishing, you know, you're not you're not publishing a, a book a year, but you're publishing a, like a fair number of books, and as you say, like you're you you think of it in in terms of a like a a more sort of stable 
craft or, or interest that you can return to in a, in a, like a sane, regular way, what do you, what, uh, what effect do you want your poems to have? Like, what do you, what do you aim to do, do with them? I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think, um, there's a few things. Um, the health of poetry, I think is hard to, how do you measure that is interesting. Cause I would, I would say that in terms of readers, it's never been as healthy. Um, the amount of people who actually- In terms of quantity. Yeah, and in terms of quantity of readers, yeah. and in terms of the amount of um, people involved in it as a, I, I guess I have a few like not necessarily um, harmonious feelings about this, which is like one part, one would be like, you know, if there's a lots of poets, then there's lots of poetry readers and maybe there's no, nothing wrong with that. I, I kind of miss the idea that the mantle of poet can only fall to a certain amount of people. And sure, sure. that's quite, that's quite um, opposite to how I think about it. You, you have a passage in, in Dead Souls, you say, an argument made by some at the t that time was that the more writing, the better for the culture in general, yeah. that the more writers, more, that more writers equaled more readers, that more writing equaled yeah, a healthy yeah. writing culture. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's one, that's one take on it. And, th and then the narrator says he violently rejects that. <laughs> <laughs> My other, so there, but, okay, who knows how we measure the health of it? I would say it's, it's in a phase and, and poetry yeah. is like always in a phase and it's always yeah. connected. Poetry is always, it's not been this eternal stable art. It's always connected to technology and society and who's allowed to practice poetry and who has the means to do so, who has the time to do so, who has the the ear of the person who gets your poetry out there. And, and you do you talk you talk in a really frank way in this book about both like connections and money in a way that people do not talk about very often. Yeah, sure. So I mean you need time to write poetry. I mean, and, and actually it's a complicated history because there's also an oral tradition of poetry, yeah, which yeah. we shouldn't write out of the equation. But, you know, in, in, in Europe, in the, you know, centuries before the 20th century, really, you had to, you know, if you were literate, you were already one of the, um, one of the few, you know, it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, a pop, it wasn't a popular art form. There, there were obviously folk traditions of song and so on. But when we're thinking about the literary tradition of poetry, it, it's almost exclusively the domain of, you know, the sort of hyper-privilege. Yeah. Another thing that's really changed is you can access poetry now, right? When I, I started, internet was very early phases when I started to get into poetry. There was no Facebook. There was like, where I got poetry was second-hand store, like second-hand yeah. bookshops. No, me too. What, yeah. what was in there just depended on who was dead, who had died, and their books then <laughs> remained, right? Or yeah. whatever you want to call it. So... So I was really finding poetry that had been published in Britain in the 80s and 90s, which was like a really narrow band of what's out there and stuff that is really not, no one talks about anymore, right? So but I couldn't read John Ashbury, you know, you couldn't, unless I had 20 quid to spend on an imported book, which I didn't, uh, you would never find that kind of thing in the secondhand bookshop. There was none of it was online. You could go to a library, but they wouldn't have it unless you were at a university. If you weren't at an institution, I mean, I mean, and that's just saying like big names of like American poetry, but you really can read that sort of stuff. So that's changed. And that's, I think, great. Like, that's an amazing thing. You can, you can basically read anything you like. So we're in a, we're in a like a strange moment historically in that people write more now than they've ever written. Everyone writes every day. 
I mean, that's the first time that's ever right. been. Um, sorry, what was the question? What's my assessment of the poetry? Oh, well, well no, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm curious, get, like, given your... So, yeah, this idea of going back to it, like, I wouldn't describe it as, like, a craft in the sense that, like, I also, like, like to make books and pamphlets, like, with paper, and then, that's a craft. Like, sure. you learn how to do it, you get better. You um, get more polished uh, your your production i don't see poetry like that because one one day i might write a poem it might be good it might not be it has no whether it's good or not has no bearing on how many poems i've written before like it's nothing to do with it like it's it's completely who knows again like if you, if you knew that if there was a formula there would be no point in doing it right so it's it's completely possible to not ever be able to write a poem again which is like the reason for probably continuing to go back to it. But I would say it almost becomes like a, a way of, of thinking. It's not something that I'm in touch with all the time. Of course not. Yeah. But it's something that remains like there. Sure, <laughs> sure. No, but but I guess I, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, for one, I, I do think that there's, I mean, depending, again, it may depend on the kind of poetry you write. And a lot of your poetry has, at least that I've encountered or that I've read about, there's often a, like a, a concept involved or a, like a, sure. a, process, a premise, yeah. a, pr a process. It's sort of like, I think of something like your, your Kim Kardashian book sounded like it was almost like high flarf. Like it was yeah, like a, a thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, or like a, a, a conceptual poetry. Yeah. yeah, with a slightly different like intention, like, but yeah, yeah it's that ballpark, yeah. But, but it, you know, I, I think like insofar as poetry has some kinship to songwriting and then on the other hand, some kinship to like joke writing, mm. there's, there is some, I, I, I so I, I did a Zoom or listened to a Zoom reading the other day that a, a an old teacher of mine gave and there, there were good poems, but like just, just purely on a technical level, setting aside the, the, the overall quality, she's uh she's been writing you know for some 50 years now yeah. and and it's and specifically writes in in chiefly in meter and rhyme right. and just in terms of the grace and the fluency of that you know she's able to make the meter and the rhyme feel truly effortless in a way that i think is a matter of refinement over time now that doesn't always correspond to the success of an individual poem or the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. or like the newness or the freshness but it's but that's a refinement and i think similarly with like certain kinds of joke telling there's a there is a a, a polish and a craft that gets developed over time then it doesn't always you know like some it needs to be yeah, matched yeah, yeah. to something that's new well then you have a new problem right you right, might yeah. you might get good at that and then the problem is, is that you've got nothing to write about. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. So I would say that it's 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 always this is always a um, there's always an uncertainty there. Like you might feel like you're confident about yeah crafting a good line or like yeah. coming up with a good metaphor or something, but that's not going to make a poem. Do you right? But so I guess what I'm asking is, do you <laughs> like do you have a are there elements of clearly like craft is not sufficient? To account for poetry, but are there elements mean, of that? In yeah, yeah, exactly. And then for me, it's quite low down the priority list. <laughs> okay, okay. Like I, I do, I do respect it, and I do like enjoy the sense of a, um, a well honed poem. But I think for me personally, too often it comes at the expense of actually having an idea. Sure. Like sure. actually delivering something that just doesn't feel like something that I've seen a hundred times before. So I guess I do prioritise, like, to some extent, I want to read something that's, like, for me, reading a poem is that feeling of, like, I don't know what the hell that is. Like, if I'm, like, if I am get excited by a poem, not that it's nonsense. Right, that, right, I also, right. I know what that is, right? Yeah. So it's like, okay, I'm not sure what's going on here, but it's like something's exciting. 
something there's something exciting about it so in a way it's like trying to find a, some sort of zone where i'm sure enough of what i'm doing on one level like that might be in terms of like i have a, a, a way of approaching the idea or like i have something i want to approach and then there's then there's also an unquantifiable part of it which is like that's the bit i don't know mm-hmm. and that maybe that's where the poem is or isn't right it's like that in that margin it's like if you know it all if you know what it's going to be before you start then to me there's not a, a, a poem there really there's like there's you carry out a program and it's right so so it I has think- to be like and there has to be a sense that you don't know if it's you don't know if it's going to work like you don't know it even you when you've written it you don't know if it's worked right like, well yeah something like there's it it comes back to this idea of a of like a hidden or like Sometimes I just feel like the poem hasn't found all the right context or it hasn't relinquished its meaning. And sometimes a poem like remains in that state for quite a long time. And I think that sometimes is okay. Yeah, it's it hasn't turned over all the cards yet, if you like. So so something I'm curious about, because I, I think like there, there are two um, you know, re- received uh, uh, criteria for, for like a success in a poem. One of which I think is very in, in vogue right now, which is the, the Emily Dickinson, you know, you, you want to feel like the top of your head's been taken off. I see, and that sounds yeah. like a little, a little bit like what you're saying about Ashbury and like what you sort of, you, you hope to, what you hope to encounter when you read a poem is sort of like, Oh shit, what, you know, but, but then the, the other one I'm curious is, you know, the, the, the houseman, like you want to remember a line the next day and cut yourself shaving. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder like, what I always wonder with poems like that is definitely you want to have that feeling of initial like, oh shit, what is going on here? But then what's the second read? Or what's like, where where does it go from there? Is my, it's kind of like. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, I, well, I, first of all, I'd say I don't really come to a poem with an expectation of what I want either. Like, but like I, I'm saying, I guess, because I'm having to think about it in terms of my own writing, like what. Sure, what, I'm what you sort, aim what for. I'm, what I'm sort of, yeah, what I'm at least interested in like that might not be what I get but something I'm curious about for me but also like there's plenty of I also think the taking the top of a head off thing is like a trick you can learn right yeah it's like the bit the poem that suddenly looks at you at the end like now change your life or whatever right sure sure yeah. it's like it's also a rhetorical move which you can learn how to do there's sometimes also I think a student said this once and I was like actually yes and they said, like, sometimes I just want to say, yeah, it's a good poem, move on. Like, <laughs> sure. I, feel t- I feel totally amenable to that. Right, like, but like I, no one wants to know what your second room. reading of a joke is. You know, you just, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, sure, exactly. Sure. I think there's room, room for all sorts of poems. That was my conversation with Sam Riviere. Again, his book is Dead Souls, available now from Catapult Books. I will have a link in the show notes. Sam also has, as I said, a number of other books. I will I will try to find a link either to a, a web page or, or a publisher's page or something. I believe they are all out from Faber, which, uh, which always has that really, uh, I, I find just to be the ideal design for a poetry book, which is, which is solid color, clear, simple, serif text, nothing else. Uh, so I, I, I am uh, I'm a big fan of that design, and I believe that is all three of his books of poetry, and I'm not sure about his other book of prose. But uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And as always, you can reach me at sleerickets at gmail.com. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.